So welcome to UCL's lunch hour lectures. Marina, you're a little bit too enthusiastic there. <laughs> so I'm very pleased to introduce today's lecture. My name's Margaret Mayston. I work in the same department as Marina. We work in neuroscience, physiology and pharmacology. And we teach some practical classes together. So my focus is on teaching, but Marina's focus is on research. So she's interested in really how we make sense of the world. So she's a, a research associate. She's based at the Human Sensory Neuroscience Research Group here at UCL. She's been here since 2015, having completed a postdoc in the States before that. So she's interested in both sensory motor integration as well as perception. And today's talk is focusing on perception. So. Um, Marina, I'd like to invite you to give us your lecture. And during the lecture, Marina will have a question for you to answer, and you need to use your little clicker here. Um, so when we get to that part, this is what you need to answer the question that she's got for you in her presentation. Thanks, Marina. <laughs> so proper start now. <laughs> Thank you again for coming. And. Today we are going to describe how we can use a method called electroencephalography in order to uh, study the link between perception and action. So I think we might be a diverse audience here, so I will describe each one of the components, electroencephalography, action and perception individually. And then uh, I'm going to describe an experiment that we did in our lab in order to put all these uh, things together. So let us start with the easy part. What is electroencephalography? It is a method that allows us to record the electrical activity of uh, the brain. And uh, for those of you who might have not known about the communication between uh, the neurons in the brain, here are two neurons. Um, and they are connected through a structure which is called the axon. And this is quite an interesting uh, structure in, uh, in each neuron. So let's focus at the beginning here. When our neurons are at the resting state, there is a difference in the potential across the membrane of the neurons. And we have more positively charged uh, ions outside the membrane and more negatively uh, charged ions inside the membrane. And when we receive, when the neuron receives uh, an input, uh, I mean, a stimulus, then there is a reversal of that. So the outside of the, of, of the membrane becomes more negative, the inside becomes more positive, and this negativity and positivity, the transition of the negativity and positivity propagates um, along uh, the axis, and this is called an axon potential. So something uh, like that. So it changes, uh, it goes uh, along uh, the axon, and it reaches the other neuron. And there it creates a cascade of similar processes. So we have that electrical activity up and down in, in our brain. So we can pick up that with our EEG. So the EEG is a set of sensors, of, of specialized sensors, like this one that we have here, or like this one that we are uh, showing in our figure, which are called electrodes. We place them on the scalp of our participant. They have specific positions and names, just a convention that we follow. And then through some wires, they are connected to a computer and we can visualize and record the electrical activity of the brain. And this looks something like that. 
So each one of the sensors here has a name. We know that each one of the graphs corresponds to a specific sensor. And this is what we call a time series. So it is the activity of the brain being recorded in very high temporal accuracy. So we can see the brain activity evolving uh, pretty much live and we have a few milliseconds uh, accuracy. So it means that every few milliseconds we can pick up a sample of the electrical activity and we have our raw uh, signal. So this is what an EEG looks like and this is what we have to, to use and analyze and try to connect it with any kind of meaningful behavior that we are uh, interested in studying. And there are many ways of analyzing these EEG data, the electrical data. I will mention just two, which are important for the experiment that we are going to describe a bit later. So one way is averaging all the signals that we are uh, collecting. So when a participant comes in our lab, he or she performs the task many times, not just once. So we have many repetitions of of this specific task. We have many recordings and what we do is we average everything together to create um, an average uh, response. And this average response has uh, some positive and negative uh, deflection. So, and it, is, it has a quite stereotypical format. So you would see something like that when you average many trials, even if you deliver an auditory stimulus, like a beep, a sound, even if your participant is saying uh, something, like a light, or even if you are touching his or her hand. So this is quite a stereotypical uh, response when you average all the trials. And what we are interested in, in this response, the features that are interesting and we are using, is the maximum of the amplitude that we observe here. So we have a positive deflection and just again out of convention in the EEG field the positive things are depicted down and the negative up. So this is a positive voltage and this is a negative voltage that makes things a bit complicated. So we have deflections and we are interested in the maximum amplitude of that. So the first one it would be two microvolts and also the latency. So how much later from the stimulus they appear. So if time zero is when the stimulus is delivered, when I hear a beep, then this first deflection happens pretty much around 100 milliseconds. So if we have a participant performing task A and performing task B, they both elicit this kind of average response, both tasks, and then by comparing these two different responses, we see what are the differences in the latency and in the magnitude of the individual parts. And we can say that maybe these differences are due to the differences of the task. So task A requires processes like that, attention and perception and whatever, and task B requires something different. I see the signals, I compare the signals and I infer that probably these differences are due to the differences of the task I am performing. And this is an actual average signal from one of our experiments. This is just an idealized representation from a textbook. This is an actual average response from one of our uh, experiments. 
So that's the first uh, uh, way of analyzing data, putting everything together and averaging them. The second way is not averaging anything. Use individual trial signal. And why we do that is you understand that it is very practical to have an average response. The same way it is very practical to say that an average person of 70 kilograms requires 200 uh, 2,000 calories. It is equally practical to say that I have an average response. But an average person does not exist. And the same way an average response does not exist. So we try to maximize the information that we are getting out of the brain by using these two complementary ways of analysis. And that's all that you need to know about EEG for, for today. And now what happens with action? How do we define action? The important thing to notice here is that action differs from simple movement and it is defined as a movement but it requires also intentions, goals, thoughts, so it has a more cognitive uh, aspect, this definition. Or an action is defined as an event, uh, as a reaction to meaningful events in the environment. And this exact part of what an action is, is what we are going to, to test uh, in our experiment. So we will deliver to our participants some stimuli and we will see how they react to this uh, stimuli. So uh, difference between movement and, and action. And here I would like your help. So we are discussing the third component, perception. And these are some statements that may or may not be um, uh, true about what perception is. So I would like you to use your clickable devices, uh, read through these statements, and I would like to hear your opinion about what perception might be or not be. Okay, perfect. Great, that's correct. So all of the above are correct definitions of perception. So even if you said A, B, C or D, actually everything are definitions that I have found in textbooks while looking for that. And they are not the only definitions out there. If you go and see what perception is, you will probably find dozens or more than that definitions of perception. So my point with this slide is that while EEG and action are a bit more clear-cut and we understand what we are talking about, perception is a bit more fuzzy because it may require some other processes like attention or awareness and all these are included in a more general uh, concept. But you will see how this difficulty in defining theoretical some concepts also give some unexpected results when you actually do the experiment. So we have described everything that we need to know and let's move on to the experiment. So what we uh, did is that we asked our participants to use this touchpad. That's a touchpad the way you use in your laptop. It is just a standalone touchpad. And they were required to move their hand in order to uh, go along the path described by this uh, target. So our participants focused on this point here, which was the go signal. Initially, it was gray, and at some point, it turned to green, and that was the go signal. So as soon as that turns from gray to green, just 
start moving, do the movement freely and return at the initial position. Pretty easy. We were recording, of course, our EEG activity and there is, that's the action part of the experiment. Now about the perception part. Just before doing the movement, the participant might hear some sounds like beeps, like that simple, or they might get some electrical stimulation on your left, on their left wrist. It, the symbol here seems very dangerous, but it is not. <laughs> it were very, very mild. After a few repetitions, the participant said, I don't really care what's happening. And that's really great because the instructions were, don't pay attention to the sound or the electrical stimuli. You don't care about that. You only care to be as precise and as accurate and fast as you can be in your task. So whatever happens in the environment, don't care, just ignore it. And they reported that they could do that and we were happy. So we had three main conditions. So bear with me, it's a bit complicated that. So we had the condition where the participant just performed the task. So no stimuli, they are grayed out, no stimuli here, just doing the movement. We had a condition where we delivered single stimuli. So just before doing the task, they heard a beep, that's it. Or they received an electrical stimulus. And they ignored it, hopefully, and they did the task. So here, because we are presenting the same stimulus over and over again, we say that we don't modulate the saliency of the stimulus. And when we say saliency, it is how much the stimulus stands out from, from the environment. And you will immediately see what's the difference with the saliency modulation condition, where we delivered to our participants immediately before doing the task triplets. So it was like sound, 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 or uh, somatosensory, uh, like electrical, electrical sound. So in the condition where the stimuli were presented within the same context, it was again a repetition of the same stimulus. So nothing really stand out. But when you change the modality of the two previous stimuli within this triplet thing, the last stimulus becomes a bit more evident. So this is what we say modulation of saliency. So whereas stimuli S1, S2, S3, and the stimulus S3 uh, in, in both triplets is exactly the same stimulus, it has the same physical properties, because here it is embedded in a different context that makes this stimulus stand out a bit more. And this is something that it is uh, very well uh, established. So that's the whole experiment uh, setup that we had. Now what's happening with the brain responses? We were recording ERP responses and we're recording uh, our uh, movement and we wanted to see if there is any modulation in our EEG signal and if this modulation corresponds to a modulation in our motor behavior. So let's start from the EEG signal. So here we have the condition that we don't have a modulation of the stimuli. So single uh, somatosensory or uh, sounds and we have the ERP uh, that we described. So this is the average response from all the trials as we have described previously. This is for the electrical stimuli and this is for the sounds. 
in experiment five, where we don't have any stimulus, we don't have that response. Although you average things, you cannot find a very clear response because you don't have a stimulus to elicit this response. What happens now that we have the modulation? So here we have the response, the brain response, elicited by the same stimulus when that stimulus is within a triplet that is of the same modality, and that would be a node change, like the dotted line, or it is embedded within a triplet that I have a change in my modality. So we compare the two, we compare these two responses, the responses to these two stimuli, to these two stimuli here and the other one. And what we see is that when the stimulus is different, stands out relative to the context that it is presented, it elicits a higher response in our brain. So the same stimulus with the same physical properties can elicit different response, electrical response in the brain. And this is true whether the stimulus is a somatosensory or uh, an auditory one, whether it is a, a shock or, or a beat. And that's not something that we found. This is something very well established. It is nice to replicate it. The interesting part comes, how can we connect this different in the response, in the EEG response, with our motor output? And for this reason, we recorded our motor behavior and we recorded reaction time. So here we present the reaction, the average reaction time of our groups in the conditions where we had three similar stimuli, so three shocks, and it is the first blue dot, or sound, sound, shock, and it is the second blue dot. And the average reaction time for the condition that we had three sounds, and the average reaction time for the condition that we had two shocks and a, a beep. And what we see is that when we have a change in the modality, when the last stimulus is presented within a different context, our participants become faster. So this is a shorter reaction time, and this is a shorter reaction time relative to the first condition. So this is really nice, especially if we think that we have just, if we remember that we have just saw that the condition where the stimuli are different also gives us a bigger response. So look in conjunction this figure where when I have a change, I have a bigger response. And when also I have a change, I have a smaller, a shorter reaction time. So I become faster. So this seemed to us like a very clear link between the perception of a salient event in the environment and how that affects our motor output. So we respond, our brain response uh, is bigger and also the subsequent movement becomes faster. And this is the analysis that we did in our group average. But I also described to you that we can do the same kind of analysis correlating our brain response and our motor output on single trials. So we went on to do that. And these are the results of a trial by trial analysis. So instead of averaging 
all the responses uh, together and having just one number for our EEG amplitude and one number for our reaction time. We had now 200 trials and we correlated the amplitude of each trial with the reaction time of that trial. And we did that for all our experiments. So here are the average responses, but I don't want to... Uh, uh, I, I put them here just to remind you which conditions we are referring to. These are the results of the trial-by-trial trial analysis. So here we have correlated the EEG amplitude of each individual trial with the reaction time for each individual trial. And we got our p-values and our t-values. So the p-values show how probable it is to get an effect just randomly. So we want this value to be very low. So randomly, I don't have uh, much uh, probability of getting an effect. So this, we want to keep it uh, low. And it is um, agreed among the community that 5% is uh, a good um, threshold, although it, there is quite hotly debated uh, issue now in, in neuroscience and in psychology, but we won't go into that. We are using this uh, threshold uh, here. If you want, I can tell you how we address any criticism for that. So we found that around 200 to 300 milliseconds, there was a significant relationship between each trial and each trial reaction time. And here, by looking at this graph, you can see the direction of this relation. So this is a positive relationship. This is like a value of 5 or something like that. And it means that when my EEG signal tends to become more positive, my reaction time tends to become more positive as well. So bigger EEG signal corresponds to longer reaction times. But I think I have confused you here because I have just described quite the opposite of what I've described before. So previously, in the group analysis, we said that bigger reaction time makes you faster. A bigger EEG signal makes you faster. And here, I'm telling you that, oh, bigger EEG signal makes you slower. So how can this be true? Both things can be true. We were equally puzzled as you. So please allow me to move on with, with our analysis and hopefully I can make that uh, clear. So until now, we just focused on the conditions that we had a modulation of uh, the saliency. Now let's look what happens when I have single stimuli. So these are the conditions where my participant receive either a shock or either just one sound. So here we have stimuli, we perceive stimuli, it's always the same uh, perception. Nothing uh, mo modulates the EEG response. And even without this saliency modulation, we still get the same kind of positive relationship. So when this part of the EEG tends to become more positive, my reaction time again tends to become longer. So we found the same kind of relationship. Okay, still puzzled. And then we also had the condition where our participants didn't receive any stimulus at all. And we looked at that, and we found that pretty much in the same 
time window around 2 to 300 milliseconds, again we found the same correlation that when our EEG becomes more positive, our reaction times become more positive, longer. So again, it seems that we are becoming slower. So by the full picture of it, we were still puzzled. How can both relationships be true? What have we done wrong? And in order to understand how this can be true, we went back to our individual uh, data, to our individual participants. And we said, let's plot for all our participants what it happens in each individual trial and when we plot also their averages. So this is the graph of one participant, of one experiment, that specific experiment, where we had three sounds and like two electrical shock and a sound. And with the pale dots, we have plotted each individual trial. We have plotted the reaction time of each individual trial and the corresponding amplitude of the EEG response we have recorded for this trial. And on top of that, we have superimposed the averages for these uh, participants. And we did that for all our participants. And what, let's focus on the average responses, which are the more uh, pronounced uh, dots. And you see that when I have the same stimuli, sound, 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 I have a reaction time of 400 milliseconds and let's say a 12 microvolt amplitude. And when I have a different, uh, um, when my, my stimulus is presented within a different context, I have a reaction time of 350 milliseconds and I have a bigger P wave, so 15. So if we see the direction between the two highlighted dots, it is in the direction that, yeah, when I have a bigger EEG response, I am, I do become faster. But if we forget now the uh, dots uh, that are more highlighted and we look at the pale dots, this line, the blue and the red line, we can see that the intrinsic variability, so the way the system modulates the EEG and the motor output of the system, points to the opposite direction. So we happened to observe, because we used two kinds of analysis, two processes that they happen to overlap in time. So one, that it is driven by the stimulus and makes us faster, but at the same time, we were able to dissociate this external imposed uh, perceptual requirement from what the system does intrinsically, what the system does when it is running without being uh, perturbed by any uh, stimulus. So this is what uh, we have been observing and this is why we uh, had all this uh, confusion with the group analysis and the trial by trial analysis. And I know that you're not very impressed now, but I hope that I can change that for you because it is quite important to understand these kind of dissociations when you try to study concepts like perception which are not very well defined. Because if you go to the literature, into the EMG literature, there are hundreds and hundreds of papers that report that around 300 milliseconds 
we see modulation in our EEG signal, and that modulation is because we allocate attention to something, to a distractor, to another stimulus that shouldn't be there, to a distractor, to a stimulus that is novel, infrequent, and, and all this. But we have shown now that maybe all these reported uh, correlations between the EEG and reaction times are not only stimulus-driven, but we might picking up other processes, which we don't know with what processes are. Definitely, they are internal goal-driven processes, but we don't know how much of that is stimulus-specific and how much is task-specific, because our participants, they did the motor task, so they were engaged, they were perceiving things, but they were not perceiving the things that we gave them externally, the stimuli. And also, we don't even know if a behavioral response is important and is necessary to drive this kind of correlation. So maybe it seems a small step in experimentation to dissociate these things, but it is actually quite important to understand the limitations when you're just using terms like perception. And probably you have understood that I started with perception and I ended up talking about attention. So these things are really fuzzy and we're really struggling to approach them in a more solid and concrete way. So the take-home message is that EEG and all other neuroimaging methods are amazing. They give us real-time information about what the brain does. But sometimes we mistaken this ability of visualizing and recording information with a false sense of understanding of things. So we have shown, we have learned that if we use multiple analyses and appropriate controls and if you push a bit more than what you expect, you can find uh, amazing results. So we should acknowledge our constraints, we should uh, regulate how we conduct our experiments, and hopefully if we are more inclusive and uh, we hear more opinions about how we should conduct our research and what other possibilities uh, might be out there, then we will make our science a bit better. Thank you. Thank you, Marina. Um, we'd like to invite you to ask some questions now um, of Marina. So you showed very nicely that there was that variability within that example subject with their different trials. What is the variability like when you look across your different participants? Is it uh, as varied for every every? Yeah, subject? it was pretty much for everyone. This uh, and is that something important as well? Yes, it is absolutely important because you don't want your data to be driven by outliers by people that have completely different behavior. And the way that we performed uh, our analysis, if it hadn't been the case that all our participants or the majority of our participants had this behavior, we couldn't have uh, found the important effect. So that's why we, we knew, actually we, we repeat the analysis, we found exactly the same thing, so we made sure that we were not doing something wrong. And then we knew that we were missing uh, something and uh, we went back to the initial raw data. And this is something that um, it is like a great uh, lesson for us to look back at what we are getting before actually going to very much of detailed analysis. Yeah, I was wondering if there's a problem with the language on perception and humans. I was wondering if animal experimentation, the language that is used there, would be more helpful. 
or I don't know what they use. Yeah, lang- I don't think that that's absolutely yeah correct. I I don't know if it is the language that fails us or it is our uh, understanding. I mean, um, you cannot really define processes that you don't know what they entail. So either we agree as a community that we use just one term for everything, or we will continue to have all these uh, mixed up things. But uh, yeah, you're quite right. We cannot really dissociate perception from awareness or awareness from consciousness. And this is like a theme that has been discussed in philosophy, neuroscience, psychology for, for ages. But we haven't reached the point to clarify that, uh, not through neuroscience yet. Hopefully, we might be able to do it. Hi, uh, thank you. I, I might not, I might not have heard very well at the back actually. But the first question was how your your subjects um, were they quite highly trained? Do they take part in a lot of experiments in your lab? No, no. So, they, just so where, where, where did did you say? I'm sorry. Where were they recruited from? Uh, there is an online recruitment system through UCL, uh, and you advertise your study, and whoever wants just uh, sign in and book uh, an appointment. So they are random students. Usually. Random students, but they were all largely within the student a- age group. Y- usually, I, I get most of them, they are students, uh, some outside. Uh, and so do they have to practice quite a lot? Or just one, one complete set, which was 40 trials. So before starting the, the whole setup, they practice without anything, without the EG, without the cables, just 20 trials. Uh, just to learn how the uh, um, uh, the thing was. Uh, That's fine, thank you. And then the other thing, again, they're just technical questions. Really, it was electrical stimulation and the, and and the sound yeah. and whether they um, your your lab has spoken a lot about salience. I mean, whether I, I didn't get a feeling mm-hmm. you've got saliency modulation and you explain that, but I mean, would. Would the subjects have said that they were equally salient, the electrical? Yes, I'm, the... I'm sorry, I didn't mention that. Yes, before starting the setup, we presented the electrical stimuli and we presented also the sounds. And perceptually, they asked, uh, we asked our participant to respond if they are equal. Of course, there are different modalities, but if they felt that perceptually were equally important. So yes, we adjusted for that. Right, so I've, I've always struggled with that a bit, that uh, uh, with this idea that you're supposed to talk about two completely different things as being equally salient. I've always thought that must be quite hard. So is is the electrical stimulation, it's not at all painful? It just no. feels like a buzz? To... Yeah, it's like a tinkling sensation. And... Uh, and so you don't, you don't know what afferents are being excited by that not, electrical stimulation? Not stimul- really. We were not interested in... in okay, thank you. I noticed you chose to use a sound with an electrical stimulation, but supposing you had a sound and a visual input at the same time, for example, if someone goes to the discotheque and there's flashing lights and sound in kind of beat with a good DJ, (laughs) do people's sensory perceptions change then because they've got this combined sound and visual input at the same time. Is that known? Um, Well, similar experiments where you have to 
ignore uh, distractors uh, which are visual stimuli have been done and they were recording again a motor output and they show pretty much similar results in the average uh, ERP responses. So they show a saliency effect if, for example, the visual stimulus is more bright. But of course, these are more control conditions than the one that you mentioned with all these uh, plethora of, of stimuli around you. So in the control conditions of the uh, lab, yes, in the average responses, you see pretty much the similar modulation. We uh, haven't used visual in the trial-by-trial -trial modulation, so I cannot really tell you what the relationship would be. But yeah, we would like also to include visual stimulation in our next paradigms. Hi, and thank you. Uh, I wanted to ask, um, during your research, uh, did you, were you, have you been present in any medical EGs? Um, and uh, my, my um, question actually was, uh, would you suggest that the way traditional medical EEGs might be differently um, contacted or interpreted through your research? Um, well, medically, the EEG is used for epilepsy. So uh, it happened to be in um, a lab that was doing uh, epilepsy uh, studies uh, in my previous postdoc. So it is a very standardized way how you use EEG there. We used it uh, in conjunction with uh, another neuroimaging method called MEG, it doesn't matter, but it is a very standardized way. And you're only looking for the spikes that epilepsy create in the electrical activity. Um, EEG clinically, uh, th there is a, a lot of research, but there are not formalized uh, standards. Uh, it is mainly focused again on the averages. So you might uh, look for electrophysiological markers of depression or of anxiety of anything like that. And usually this research is focused on, again, the amplitude and the latency. So from my perspective, if we could show that this type of analysis and also other types of analysis can give you more information, then I think it would be better if we could include this in more experimental clinical work, yes. Um, maybe you mentioned this and I missed it, but when it comes to the difference in the reaction time between your somatosensory stimulus and your auditory, did you actually see a difference seeing as you have such a sensory motor integrative property with the somatosensory system versus the auditory uh, reflex? To be honest, I don't remember quite that. Let me just go back to the slide. I'm, I'm so sorry. Um, I think they were a bit faster with the auditory, but I have to I have to check it. Yeah, they were a bit faster with the auditory, and I think we checked it, and it was uh, significant. So w wouldn't that also in influence how you would think about your experiment in itself, and in terms of of what this could mean, just as a as a distractor versus the perception. Uh, yes, you are absolutely right that th there are uh, consequences on what constitutes a, a distractor. And uh, actually, now that I'm, I'm bringing my, back uh, all to my mind, people usually found the electrical stimuli more, uh, well, 
not upsetting, but initially they didn't like them a lot. So they tend to feel more comfortable with the auditory stimuli. So the fact that the auditory stimulus uh, uh, led to um, uh, shorter reaction times uh, might be a bit surprising or might be just the fact that the auditory system in the brain is a bit faster than the somatosensory system. So probably the stimulus is analyzed a bit earlier, but this is how it always uh, happens. But any kind of difference between the modalities were taken into account in the trial by trial analysis. So we, we included the factor that we have different modalities and we included the factor that we had a change or no change of modality. So that was the very uh, uh, um, the very uh, like um, compact uh, uh, description that they gave you. Yeah, another follow-on question, which or well, not follow-on, but it's um, in a sense perception. If something is repeated a lot, uh, it's less. You might you might not notice it as much. So in a sense, instead of doing it three times, if you did it thirty times and changed, uh, would you get a bigger? impact on the or because oh suddenly i've heard a noise or oh i've just suddenly had a which is which is unexpected so in a sense there it's perceived as more even though it is the same that's that's a really nice question actually one of my colleagues has done an experiment where they delivered i don't know i think 100 uh, times the same stimulus and they uh, find a model of how this uh, uh, difference in the react in in the EEG signal uh, changes, and the majority of this change happens, I think, in the first uh, three to five uh, repetitions. So after that, you get like a pretty much just a tail um, of the of the distribution. Uh, but we haven't done the, the other one that you suggested, actually giving a stimulus after. Uh, all these repetitions. I, I don't really know, but it would be interesting to, to try it. Could you join me in thanking Marina for her talk today?